Now we have the privilege of turning our attention to God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, please open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. This morning in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we will be looking at verses 1 to 13. And hopefully, by keeping it less than a whole chapter, we'll remain nice and timely. And let's see how that works out for us. Listen as I read this passage, then we pray, and we will dig into 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, he said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen him. And then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Lord God, as we take this time now, set aside from all that is going on, to really seek to focus in on and hear and understand your word. Lord, we pray that you would again take this passage where you've recorded this account of your own working and your own purposes so many years ago in the history of Israel. And we pray that you would bring it to us today with a freshness, with a clarity, with an understanding. God, that you would use your word in our own hearts and in our own lives, that we might see you and worship you in, uh, more clearly, that you would reveal to us something of your sovereign grace and glory, Lord, and that we might worship you truly in truth and spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Now, as we take up this passage, I had emphasized sort of as a title, uh, the sulking, seeing, and serving. That looks at Samuel, but we're going to take this passage up really in three different ways. I could say this, we're going to go through the passage. You thought I chose a smaller passage, but we're going through the same passage three times. Okay. Now, the first time that we're go- we, we simply go through it, we're going to, we're going to look closely at the storyline. We're going to follow the narrative and the events that took place. Then we're going to go through it again, and we're going to look at it second t- a second time, and we're going to look at, at Samuel's lessons, those things that he saw and the things that he learned. And then we're going to go back through it a third time, and we're going to take a look at our sovereign Lord. Okay? This second two will not take near as long as the first one, so if you're timing, do not be concerned. All right? So let us begin to unfold this passage as we take up this narrative. Uh, this, to, to see this, we have to remember all the events that kind of preceded it. I'm going to summarize only the salient ones to this particular point. God was the king of Israel who brought them out. In their wicked desires, they wanted to be just like all of the other nations, which we've reminded ourselves from time to time, like all the other nations who they defeated, who lost their lands and lost their countries and lost their lives because their gods were no gods. Their kings could not protect them. God had shown himself mighty, powerful, provided for them, leaded them, guided them, and yet then they say, we want to be just like the losers. You know, God helped the, the heart and mind of the natural man. The decisions that he makes, we look at that. Now we look at that with the wisdom that we have after the fact. We look at it with the grace that we stand in and it makes us easy to cast judgment on them. And so since it's easy, we do it. But do it with caution, okay? Because here's the tendency. There's a whole world going on around us. And and at times, churches start to do the same things. Well, not a lot of people are coming. Well, the young people aren't really that interested. Let's look at what the world is doing and, and how that's working, and let's make sort of a Christian version of the world. You know, And let's use all of their methods, all of their forms of attraction. Let's see how much like the world we can be while still somehow remaining Christian. We don't need that. that. That game doesn't work. It doesn't work deeply. It doesn't work significantly. But that's what the children of Israel had done. We want a king. And then surprisingly, God in his own purposes, a mystery to us many times, said yes. He granted their request, even though Samuel was very upset about it. And God reminded him, it's not you, Samuel, that they've rejected. It is me that they've rejected, but they shall have a king. We had actually gone back and seen from the book of Deuteronomy, this was no surprise to God. He had already said, when you come into the land, you're going to demand a king, and I'm going to let you have one. So uh, God knew and always does know everything that's going to unfold. And as they come, Saul had become the king. 
their first king, taller than all, handsomer than all, uh, just uh, carries himself with a bearing of significance that exceeded all of his peers. Now, he then took the leadership, had some victorious wars and battles, but in the process began to become quite full of himself and compromised. But he did not have to do exactly as God said, but generally as God said. That he could make, he and the people could make adjustments and modifications according to their preferences and their wisdom while disregarding God's clear word and will. They were wrong. They should not have done that. And in doing that, it was stated in the previous chapter that the kingdom would be taken away from Saul. He would not remain as king. Now, as we reach this next chapter, he is still king. As we move on to the next chapter, he is still king. So it's not immediately ripped from him, but it's stated, his days as king are numbered. It is going to be taken away from him and given to another more worthy than him. That's what the scriptures had stated. And so as we come now into chapter 16, that's what God has communicated. And let me read just the closing verse of the previous chapter. It said this, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel now we looked at all those ideas of regret and repent we looked at those carefully last week so we're moving on focusing in that closing verse Saul grieved he was upset the way that things had unfolded were not how he wanted them to go this man had become king they had done quite a few things together he didn't want him to be king in the first place, and Saul was grieved over the way that this has happened. I can't overly speculate to what degree they've developed a close affinity and a wonderful camaraderie. I don't know that it indeed may have been. But I know he was upset with what Saul had done and or with Saul's loss of the kingdom that was coming and it says he grieved. And by chapter 16, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? More literally, until when? Is what it more literally says there. Until when will you grieve over Saul? Now, what, I, I like that. Because there are a lot of things that happen in this world, and I might say in my own life, that I think... I don't like this. I wish things were different. I wish things had happened differently. Do you ever feel like that? So the grieving was not the problem. The problem is this passage shows that there is a sustained sulking. And that is our first point in this, in this uh, narrative. A sustained sulking. He began to grieve at the end of that chapter. And here as, as, as God meets him and speaks to him, how long will you do it until when? There seems to be he's upset, he doesn't like what's happened, and he's just focusing on that. 
He's just dwelling on that, and now that's, all, all, that's his all-consuming thought. I can't believe this happened. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to Israel? I don't like this. It should have been, it should have been like this instead of that. And, and coming up with all of these different ideas. In the times that things don't happen as we want, we oft become, inappropriately, God's counselors. All right, God, here's what needs to be done. I'm thinking forgiveness for Saul. We just make it all right and uh, carry on. What do you think? Well, that wasn't God's plan. God had said it's done. I'm not removing it. Now, we don't have any, any indication of a give and take. But the reality is, whenever we face problems, I'm quite sure, at least in my own life, I think I know exactly what ought to happen to fix this. If this happens and if this fixes it, and maybe, or I look back at the situation and I think, well, if only, if only Saul hadn't done this, and if only this hadn't happened, and then this, and then if only, and, and we just build all these stories of if only these things hadn't happened, it would all be okay. Now the challenge that we do face here in this is he says, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king? He's basically saying this to him. I did it. I did this. I mean, you're focusing on Saul and, 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 his, and what he did wrong and the possible implications for Israel and how that affects years of work that you've put in with Saul and with Israel. But here's the reality of where you stand today. You stand where you stand by my plan. I'm the one who rejected him. You're grieving over what I've decided to do. So there's a certain point where you stop there and you realize, okay, the, I don't like this. I haven't enjoyed this. Uh, I, I wish things had been different. I wish I could fix it. I wish I could redo it, whatever it may be. And, and you just say, but this is where I am. And I'm not here by any accident. You know, what's done is done. Not only what's done is done, we could also go further and say what's done was divinely designed. You could say ultimately what has happened and is happening is divinely purposed. It's all the work of God. And that's why we've got scriptures that say this so powerfully to us. Remember we looked at those words when Job in his struggling state looks at his inability to escape and God's relentlessness in, in keeping him and allowing him to remain in that difficult position he was in. And Job said in Job 23, 13, these words, but he is unchangeable. Well, that's, that's the way that it's stated um, in the ESV. He is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Now for the phrase unchangeable there, if you have different translations, it will say different things. If you have the old King James there, it says he is of one italicized mind. Because it, it, is, it is simply that word one. Be'echad. 
One is the simple word there, which he is the same. He is singular, fixed. God doesn't, God doesn't waffle with uncertainty. God's not making modifications and adjustments and tweaks because something went awry. No, it's not like, like we do, that, that things are just going. When you and I are driving, for example, you can't just point it straight and you're done. Because of the circumstances of the road or the nature of the vehicle, depending, some vehicles you let go and it just begins to change lanes by itself. Most of my cars. At the very least, you need to, you need to do little corrections along the way because if you did not do those little corrections, you go off. And you usually do those little corrections because you realize you've gone slightly off the center of the lane where you want it to be. We make those little changes and those little adjustments because things aren't exactly as they should be. This is not the way God works. And it's very important for us to understand that. There's no point at which God looks at it and says, oh no, that, that got a little away from me. it's just a little outside of where I wanted it to be let me let me try to get it back no that's how we work that is not how God now we look at it and say well that's that's definitely not pleasing to him with regard to what he says we ought to be behaving how we ought to be doing and that's right when we see something is not in line with his revealed word by grace Repent and get it back how it should be. But when you look at circumstances around, even politics and even other things, and you think, things are out of control. Well, from our perspective, things are out of control. But from God's eternal purposes and every detail of every day, is anything actually out of control? Is anything awry? If he had the power to change any of those things right now, well, what what do you mean if he had the power? He actually does have the power at all moments to change anything should he desire to. And actually, whatever he desires, that he does. This is a mystery. Yes! And it's a mystery where we get to sit back with that confidence and comfort and see who and how great our God is. What he's done, he has done. And he will bring it to pass and bring it to pass purposefully. So we need to, unlike what's going on here with Samuel, stop dwelling with and on the difficulty. Stop focusing on how, what is wrong, what is missing, and what he ought to be doing is saying, now, based on these circumstances and this situation, what would you have me do? It's just too easy to focus on, oh, if, if only this was different, I would do this, and only this, I would do this. And so here you are, none of those scenarios have worked out, so what are you doing? Nothing but complaining about how things aren't how you, how you or I would want them. How long are you going to grieve over this? 
With what sustained sulking are you going to look at some situation? And at what point will you take your eye off of that and look to the sovereign God and say, it is according to the counsel of his will who works everything after the counsel of his will perfectly to his divine purposes. So God, what would you have me do? We see uh, from this sustained sulking where, where it's almost as if Samuel comes to the, the position, now it's over. Now everything is undone. I don't know what the future of Israel is. The king, they, they've rejected God. God's rejected their king. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even have a solution for this. That's fine, Samuel, if you don't. Because the second thing we see here is a sovereign self-provision. A sustained sulking and a sovereign self-provision. I have rejected him from being king over, over Israel. Fill your horn and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So I, I love this. Because the wording is so good, and, and it's, it's unnatural phrasing to the way that we speak. It's not, there is a worthy one among his sons. I have taken note of one of his sons. That, that's the way we think, and we think that God's like, well, who, 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 who could get it done? Who could get it done for me? Mm. No, that, that's... And this is, the, this is the difficulty we always face. Our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. And we and, and we're constantly have to remind ourselves of that. His, the way he processes things is not the way that we do. And so he, here he says, regarding the sons there, I have provided for myself from among his sons. So that David would be more worthy than Saul. That David would have his heart rightly set to serve as king. Was that in David himself by his own nature and natural circumstances? Or was it a powerful work of God's own providing? Hmm. It's important to notice that. I will provide for myself. Not I've sought out, searched, and found. But I have done it. I've established one. It is a sovereign self-provision. So go there and anoint him. Now he, here we're, we're, he's communicated this to Samuel. And what should Samuel's response be? Yes, sir. It's pretty simple. But what is his response? He moves from a sustained sulking to a foolish fear. Doesn't he? What, what does he say here? Um, how can I go if Saul hears of it? He will kill me. I think even of God's mercy here because my tendency would have probably been, been to question him. So Samuel, you think... God can't protect you? You, you? you think that somehow God can't stop him? What, what, what's going on with your mind, Samuel? Well, see, that's exactly what's kind of happened with Samuel's mind. He's looking. 
And we're going to see in a moment his, his perceptions as to even who should be king. But he, he's living in a season where all of his perceptions are very superficial. They're very limited on, on, on the practical, personal, experiential. And, and he's stuck there. And so I don't know if I go and anoint another one to be king, Saul will kill me. It's, it's a logical possibility but he doesn't state i might be in danger saul might kill me god would you be kind enough to protect me should i go it does not look in the text like he's seeking god's protection as much as it looks like he's just thinking i don't want to do it I just don't want to do this. It's too dangerous. It's too difficult. I don't know all of his thoughts at this point. He may be even thinking, you know, I put, I invested so much into Saul already to start all over again with another guy. I don't know. But we have this this foolish fear, which really almost doesn't even necessarily deserve addressing by us, does it? What can man do? What cause is there to fear? Oh, come on. And so we move from this foolish fear, and then I'm going to go more quickly because then we're going to anyways look at Samuel and then look at, at our sovereign God. We move from what was a foolish fear to a prudent plan, verse 3 and 4. Uh, he t- he t- God tells him, really verse 2 and 3 and 4, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Is God asking him to lie? Not at all. What is God telling him to do? Take a heifer with you and go and sacrifice to me. And if people ask you why you've come, tell them you've come with this heifer to sacrifice to me. God at no point is permitting dishonesty or lying. But he certainly is permitting prudence and even the withholding of certain details that are unnecessary and that will unnecessarily complicate things. You know, uh, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. So when is lying good and permitted? Yeah, never. And so you visited someone's home and they've put their special family dish before you and you sampled it and a mild nausea has arisen and they ask you how do you like it how do you find it what's the typical answer in that situation it's good oh this is this is good now is is that truthfulness now we 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 would consider it a small thing and now you could say something i have honestly not tasted anything like this before (laughs) you know or you know this reminds me of a dish my mother used to make that I also hated you may not add that second phrase but lying never really works into acceptability lying is never the will and design of God deceitfulness is not acceptable but forms of deception may have their place okay so be cautious be wise 
be prudent. Now, here, here what I, here's what I find shocking about this situation as well. God could have simply done this. I've got you. I will protect you. But God decided in this instance not to extend a supernatural divine protection from Saul, but to have him utilize additional or secondary activities and the prudence of his disclosure and discourse in order to protect him. In other words, we ought to use wisdom. We ought to be careful. We ought to be prudent. We ought to think with, with uh, uh, counsel. We shouldn't just blather and blurt and blindly rush into things thinking God has to protect me. You know? God has also given you heart, mind, wisdom, hopefully in some measure. Counselors ought to be in abundance wherever we have b- brothers and sisters around us to say, you know, I'm facing this situation. What do you think I ought to do? How do you think I ought to handle this? And we come alongside each other and we, and we learn to walk together to exercise wisdom to walk with care in this world, but not a wisdom that sets aside the clear word and instruction of God in order to make things easier, in order to make the peace or... So no lying is permitted here, but a prudent plan is put in place. He goes there and he announces he's coming. It's what's interesting also, Samuel did what the Lord commanded him. And it says, uh, he came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling. Here's the shocking thing. He was afraid of what Saul would do to him. The elders of the city there are afraid of what he might do. Just remember what happened at the end of the last chapter. They brought out the king of the Amalekites and he cut him to pieces at a feast. You know, it it, it was just so brutal really so savage when you when we think of it in that way and and now savage samuel has just come to bethlehem what has he done i i, I would imagine it's not unlikely that in bethlehem there would have been some soldiers that had been among those who battled in the previous chapter some of those soldiers who had kept back those bleating sheep and those lowing oxen that were supposed to be killed but had tried to keep them back for themselves. And they're just wondering, uh-oh, did punishment begin with the, the king? And, and that, now it's, it's coming to get us for what we did? And so here, they're hesitant. They're nervous. I would dare say if anyone should be nervous at this point, maybe Saul. <laughs> Looking at what Samuel did to that king, maybe Saul should be the one fearful, not Samuel. But he goes there and he says, uh, uh, do you come uh, peaceably? And he says to them, of course, he, he says, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice. And then it says, so he tells them to consecrate themselves. Then he, it seems, seeks out Jesse and he consecrates Jesse and he's, his sons. So there's, there's more more deliberate interaction with Jesse and his sons preparing them for this feast than there are for the others. Consecrate yourselves, 
go and do it. But Jesse's family, uh, he goes to them, consecrates them, and uh, they come to this peace offering that's being offered. And following the peace offering, there would be a small feast that would take place that it seems is only for Jesse and his family. Now, as uncomfortable as it is from verse 5 and following, we have what could only be termed a peace offering pageant. Mm-hmm. Because these, now it's men in this occasion, which makes it even more uncomfortable. Right? These men are going to, to come through the sons of Jesse, one by one, and they, they kind of come into his present and present themselves, you know, and he looks, he looks them over, and then makes a judgment, and he moves on, and then the next son comes through, and he, he, he looks them over. I mean, I don't know the details, whether it, it was simply observance, which does seem to be, has a look at him, yeah, this is the guy, or whether there was some discussion involved, none of that is listed here. But you have this pageant of, of boy after boy after boy, really young man after young man after young man, passing through, in the presence of Samuel. And Samuel, what does it say in verse 6? It says, when he looked at Eliab, that, that's the oldest one, he thought, verse 6, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said, do not look on his appearance. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees the Lord looks on the outer appearance I mean the man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart and so we see that this first one comes and it's an evidence of, of very different perceptions going on between the two how God is dealing with this and how man is dealing with it. Again, I wanted to note before we said, God said, I have provided for myself. So even what he will see in the constitution and in the character and in the heart of David is only that which he himself has put and worked there. Nonetheless, men don't see those things. God's provision, God's inner work and God's purposes as plainly as we can see the face and the size and the, and the countenance. Let's, uh, then Jesse said, uh, called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And he makes them all pass through one by one till all seven of his sons is, have passed by. Verse 10, the Lord has not chosen these. But even though it seemed done and all was lost, his question was, but, I, but God had told me he'd provided among his sons. His sons have now all passed before me and none of them are chosen. What's going on? So he asks, Jesse, are all your sons here? Because God had said it was one of his sons. He's just had his sons pass before him. Well, apparently Jesse had one more son. One more son of such seeming compared to his brother's insignificance. There's no need to even invite him. Let's leave the little guy. He's the, he's the youngest. He's the smallest. He's the seemingly most insignificant. Let's just leave him out with the sheep. Because surely if God is choosing one of my sons to this special task, it's going to be one of these guys. 
I mean, this one's strong, this one's accomplished, this one's really smart, this one. David, uh, uh, I don't know, but I mean, Jesse didn't feel it even necessary for David to be there because he was convinced among his other sons there was one of greater capacity, one of greater fitness, one that would meet the need. I dare say Jesse was wrong. Isn't it right? Now, let's, let, so this they all pass before him and there remains the youngest. And so the, the sixth thing we see in the narrative is a son selected. Eventually, he comes in from keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get for him because we're not going to uh, sit down until he comes. Verse 12 says, and he brought him in. And it says, now he was ruddy. Which is a, it's a strange language. And it, it would be reddish would be the phrase. And once, once a phrase is just left lingering like that, men jump in. You know, uh, that means he was a redhead. Well, it, it, it might, whether it's, or others would say a red complexion. Whether it's a reference to his hair color, a reference to his complexion, here's the reality. I don't know. But whatever it was, it, it was distinctive. You know, some would say, well, I think it's, he was reddish. It meant that, that you know, he wasn't the, the special spoiled son. He spent all his time outdoors with the sheep and the sunburned, suntanned, darkened, you know, so, and, and in those societies, fair. Who's the fairest of the land? You know, fair-skinned light is beautiful, and, and so he's just, the, he's just the, the field laborer. He's just the worker. He's just the, not, I don't know whether it's, it's meant as a disparaging term or an attractive term. I don't know, but when you look at the rest of it, regardless of his ruddiness, whether it's a reddish hair or a reddish face, the fellow was a good-looking man. It says he had beautiful eyes, or bright or light eyes, and was handsome, good in appearance. So, so here's the important idea. Uh, wait a second. So the one that God actually chose was also attractive? Yes. So, so those among you who are attractive, that doesn't mean you're not going to be chosen because of that. God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the strong. But God has chosen some by, by worldly standards that are relatively wise. Some by world sta worldly standards that are relatively strong. God's selections, you know, God doesn't, and this is so beautiful here. It's not like, well, I'm, I'm going to prove a point to you. I'm, I'm going I'm to pick the ugliest son possible. You know, the, the guy that people will look at and say, Man, he's the king. Yeah, I'm glad I get to bow my head and look at the ground because I don't want to. <laughs> not at all. That's not the principle that, that's, that's going on here. means the outward appearance uh, uh, neither gained you points or lost you points. You didn't, there's nothing wrong with being good looking. Some of you now are saying, thank you for saying that. I feel, <laughs> feel much better now. No. But uh, so the one he ended up cho choosing would mature and grow into 
even appearance-wise, being an attractive and fit candidate, even in the eyes of man. But not because of that. But he had those looks, and he says, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. So now I just want to uh, see the, the lessons that Samuel learned here, and we're going to see them quickly, and then we're going to look at the Sovereign Lord. The lessons and the things that we see from Samuel is this. He was sulking in a manner in which he should not do. He was sulking like he shouldn't do, grieving over the very purposes of God. Grieving over the very will of God. If we grieve, let us grieve, and then we cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. We, we leave it at his feet. You know, we, we often say, Lord, we, we, we entrust these things to your care. And I often want to remind us, whether we leave them to him or entrust them to him, he's already in control. Even if you were to say regarding something, I'm not leaving this to you. You lose. Because he's still the one who's in control. I'm not entrusting this to you. I'm going to have to handle this myself. He's still in charge of even that circumstance. But we say that in submission, submissive recognition. God, we look to you. We, we, we want to follow your will. We want to honor you. He's, he's sulking like he shouldn't sulk, letting it be sustained. The Lord, uh, it says in, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4 and 5, for those who have been reading through, or the McShane reading will have been reading through the Proverbs, it says this, Therefore the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. There's no accidents. Well, even the bad things that was part of the design? Yes. Well, I still didn't like it. Fine. Grieve over it. Deal with the struggles. Then move on and trust God because he is in control. It says this. Um, let me, let me show, show you a few more. Well, we'll, we'll see them in the next one. All right, he was not only sulking like he shouldn't do, he was scared like he shouldn't be. Why did he need not, need not be scared? So many times God was telling the children of Israel, or he was telling to Joshua, do, for example, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who is with you, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We know those wonderful words, right? Because they come to us in the new covenant in the person of Christ. I will never leave you or forsake you. What strength, what comfort. So uh, again, I might ask from the other side, why are you still grieving? You didn't get this. This isn't as you want. You don't have that. But you know what you have? You know who's with you? and is never going to leave you or forsake you? Jesus Christ, your Savior, and he's going to come again for you, and he's going to raise you up, and he's going to make you like him and give to you an eternal inheritance that's way better 
than what you're grieving over right now. And so we see uh, things like this. Psalm 56, verse 3 to 6. Listen as I read these words. So rich. Psalm 56, verses 3 to 6. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can men do to me? What can Saul do to me? Verse 5, all day long they injure my cause. I'm just having such a hard time. Not only only am I afraid for my life, but the psalmist here is like, man, they're blighting my reputation. They're coming against my, my, my efforts. They're impugning my integrity. Oh my goodness. Ah, help me. What do I do? What can, they injure me all day long. All their thoughts against me are evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. They have waited for my life. What do I do? Ah! Well, verse 11. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And that's so <laughs> You know, we, we live in a country where strangely enough, our money says a little, in God we trust. And maybe because it's on the money and seems to mean nothing there, the, the phrase itself has begun to kind of mean too little across the board. It is a significant phrase. In God we trust. In the midst of tragedy, in God we trust. In the midst of trial, in God we trust. In the midst of attacks and affliction, in God we trust. I will not be afraid. I will not be crushed. I will not fear. I will not be demoralized. I will take heart. Why? Because in God I trust. He is with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. It's all, it's all about Him. My very existence, the fact that I still have breath, is that I might serve for the praise of His name. So it doesn't matter if things are being done or being said that, so that people are not praising my name or thinking highly of me because that's not what I'm about anyways. I'm about that people would think highly of him and praise his name and not me. But when they speak badly of you and then they malign you and when they misrepresent you, is it going to hurt? Yeah, it is. Let's let's be real. It's going to hurt. And what do you do? Okay, grieve a little bit, sulk a little bit, and move on. I mean, sometimes it can sound harsh and deal with it. I'm not saying, I'm not, not that. It's not just you deal with it. It's, all right, eyes off of me, eyes off of this, eyes on him. That's what it is. In God I trust. In his name, we will go forward and we will seek to honor and praise him. Psalm 118 verse 6 says this, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Oh, that someone would have quoted these verses to Samuel at this point in time. 
Of course, they hadn't yet been written. <laughs> so, but we have the fullness and the richness of God's word, even as it goes forward, because we have a better covenant with better promises, spiritual provision, rich and glorious deliverance. Oh, that is ours. So, scared like he shouldn't be scared. Third thing that we see in the lessons of Samuel, he was seeing like he shouldn't see. His seeing was selective, only certain things, and his seeing was superficial, only the surface. Now, let me be honest with you right now. That's how we all see. Every situation that you and I look at, I mean, it's easy for us to think, yeah, that guy's selective in the, yeah, well, they see from a, a jaded perspective. And they're like, no, that's all of us. <laughs> we, we, we'll see somebody do something. Look what they did. Not ask ourselves, I wonder what, what struggles and what challenges they may be going through right now that, that, that they responded that way. I mean, but we're seeing only that one. We're seeing only what they did and how that, that bugged us and that, how, that, how that got to us, aren't we? And then we're, we're making long-standing conclusions about their abiding character on the basis of a moment that might be a season of struggle in their life. Is that good? Now, when I put it that way, we're all going to say, no, it's not good. But in the practical walk of life, we do it. Brothers, <laughs> sisters, no. It can't be. Life for each one of us is much more challenging and much more complex than all of that. And we need grace upon grace. And then after that, you know what we need? More grace. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that God would help us not to see. And what's interesting is this. When, when Eliab comes through, the first son, verse 6, it says this. He came, he looked upon him and thought, and the word there is, surely this is the one God has chosen. Surely. The, the, the phrasing there, it's an emphatic affirmative. I know. Listen, Samuel, a prophet of God, knows he's sent for a particular task, and when it came time to make a decision, he looked at it with a superficial observation and drew a conclusion with absolute confidence, and he was completely wrong. Surely, this is the one that God has chosen. And what's the answer, Samuel? You're wrong. What? Can a godly, spiritual servant of the Lord be wrong? Can he possibly not see or understand what God's purposes are? Yes. Even Samuel? Yes. Even me? Yes. You'll say yes to that. Even you? Yes, we have it. Seeing like he shouldn't see, just so based upon that, seeing that he was handsome, seeing that he, ha he had all of those traits that seemed right. So that said, are you and I ultimately along the way going to have observations and make decisions and have opinions that are wrong? Yeah. 
and not infrequently. Because remember, the reason he sees this way, God explains it's because God sees not as a man sees. For man sees, and then he explains how man sees. And what are we? But men. And so we have to, we have to give pause before we make our determinations. We need to give prayer and prayerful consideration before we just rush ahead with condemnation or with approval and acceptance. E- e- either way, we could be completely wrong. But here's the last thought that I want to draw your attention re- regarding Samuel. Though he saw like he shouldn't, uh, you know, sulked like he shouldn't sulk, scared like he shouldn't be scared, seeing like he shouldn't see, he served like we all should serve. Because when, when God told him what he needed to do and God, God explained it to him, I love the way it phrased simply at the beginning of verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Yes, <laughs> there it is. So with all of the other struggles and with all of the other issues and with all of the other things going on that you can't control and that you can't fix and that you may draw wrong conclusions about, God's word is clear. God's word is solid. God's word is firm. Go with that. Walk in that. Live in that. That's where you want to be. We want to serve even as he served. What's also I want to point out just before I I rush out of this this section is this. Uh, It's important to note this. Sometimes when we look at a narrative, it's just too easy to draw conclusions that we ought not draw. We read into the story ideas that we like. Here is the second king being chosen. God's manner and work in this is entirely different than the choosing of the first king. In the choosing of the first king, God worked circumstances through runaway donkeys to get Saul to travel to Samuel. He brought him there. He told Samuel, tomorrow at noon, this fellow's coming. So tomorrow at noon, Samuel heads out to the gate of the town. They meet. He brought him. God brought the king right to Samuel's doorstep. And so someone might conclude. And so whatever you're looking for, whatever you're might facing, pray and persevere and God will bring it right to your doorstep. No, brothers and sisters, that's not necessarily the way that it works. The second king... Could God have sent David there? Maybe some lost sheep roaming around? Easily. But what did God do this time? (laughs) He told Samuel, you go. More than that, when, when he came up and they met, it was the first person that he met was the king that God had selected. With regard to Jesse's sons, it was the last son that he met. So one, the the would-be king was sent to him. The other, he was sent to the would-be king's family. One, it was the first. Another, it was the last. So which one will it be? How does God work? Does he send or does he, do we wait? Do do we, God works how he works. (laughs) 
You be faithful to his word. You be patient. You persevere. You be among the collective counsel of godly men and women. And he will accomplish his purposes. It's not as cut and dry as the fellows on television might like you to believe sometimes. It can be more complicated than that, where they can take a narrative like this, ignoring other ones, and, and build something that sounds great. Yes, he's going to bring him to my doorstep. The solution's going to come right to me. I just wait for it. Noon tomorrow. I'll claim that promise. No, that's not going to work for you because you are not Samuel waiting for the king to be sent. You can't claim a promise that was given to somebody else about something else for you. Because that's just not the way it works. Well, then how exactly does he work? However he pleases. Oh. So, so, so is it going to be the last or the first this time? You know what? It might be the second. Because sometimes among sons, many sons, it was not the firstborn, but the secondborn who would be chosen and n neither any subsequent so sometimes it was the second sometimes the youngest sometimes the oldest i don't understand uh, give me give me the simple box that i can do it right every time yeah you want that box there's plenty of people who will sell you that box for the right donation but that's not the way god works his ways aren't our ways his thoughts are, are not our thoughts but he is in absolute sovereign control. And so we proceed with wisdom. We proceed with a constant searching of the word. Now Samuel had the blessing of not that one, not that one. Would you, and I not like that too? Ah, in decision making, that would be wonderful. Not that, but we do have the scripture telling us the kinds of things that are acceptable to him, the kinds of priorities that are pleasing to him. And we have to work to see, to to compare our circumstances with the things that scripture re reveals as priorities with those things that are going on it's a lot more work yes it is it requires a lot more prayer yes it does dependence on God and his unfolding purposes not on ourselves and somehow receiving divine wisdom now moving on quickly and in closing to, to a brief look at our sovereign Lord after seeing the lessons given by through Samuel because we need those lessons we identify with them the, the statements regarding our sovereign Lord we just rejoice in together you know there's and that is this verse 1 says I have rejected Saul verse 1 says I have provided another verse 1 says I will send you verse 3 says I will show you what to do Effectively, as it moves on, we could say, somewhat now paraphrasing down towards verse 10, I will choose from among the sons. And he selected the one Jesse did not expect, the one Samuel did not expect. I will choose. And then verse 13, and, the, and from that day forward, the spirit of, the God, of God rushed upon him. I will equip. So when I look at things related to the sovereign Lord in this passage, I have rejected, I have provided, I send you, I will show you what to do. I choose, I will equip. Wow, it seems like you're doing it all. Well, no, I send you, you gotta go. <laughs> I told you to fill the thing with oil, you gotta fill the thing with oil. I told you to anoint the sun, you need to anoint the sun. I told you take a heifer, you need to take a heifer. 
there's still the responsibility of man unfolding under the sovereignty of God. Is that a mystery? It remains so. And so, in conclusion, just a simple review of the things we've considered today. In terms of our storyline, we saw a sustained sulking and then a sovereign self-provision. We saw a foolish fear and a prudent plan. We saw a peace-offering pageant and a son-selected. Of Samuel's lessons, we saw him sulking like he shouldn't do, scared like he shouldn't be, seeing like he shouldn't see, but serving like we all should serve. We saw our sovereign Lord. I have rejected, I have provided, I will send you, I will show you what to do, I will choose, I will equip. What a God. And in all of this, you even want to look at that for a moment. In the fearfulness and the hesitancy and the abiding sulking of Samuel, God still sent him. God still used him. God didn't say, all right, you have an excuse, I will send another. God was patient. He was merciful. He emboldened him and he sent him. So praise God, he uses people who make mistakes. He uses people who are far from perfect. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and just the privilege of spending time in it together. Lord, there is, there is nothing that so conveys truth, that so reveals our own hearts, minds, and human weaknesses, tendencies, and inadequacies. And there's nothing that so presents your power, your sovereignty, your eternal purposes, and your absolute security than your word. Lord, we thank you for your word and the way that it sets forth things so clearly for us, your people. Continue, O God, through it to bring glory to your name and to shape our minds and our hearts in a knowledge of you for your own pleasure and good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.